You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thank you, and welcome to Bethel White House, right? My first time here uh, in a service. We, we were, we've been here before, um, and so it is a great blessing, great honor to be with you guys uh, this morning. So thanks for having me. And you're, you're flying solo this morning. Yeah. Okay. Family at uh, Bedside Baptist, something like that. Okay. Pastor Sheets, Reverend Pillow, y'all been there. Um, so here, here we are in this, in this Christmas season, which is, which is a big deal for the church, right? I mean, it just is, and um, I don't know how long you've been kind of in this church thing. I don't know how long you've been in this um, Christianity thing, but um, sometimes as an outsider, we forget what it's like to be an outsider, right? And sometimes during this season, we have these uh, folks that come to church, you know, we would call them, have you heard the term creaster? They come kind of at Christmas and Easter, right? I used to be like that. Many people are like that. And so when you come into something like the church, and um, I will say Christians, we sometimes speak a different language, right? You have like Japanese, you have Chinese, and then you have Christianese. You know what I'm saying? Like we sometimes speak a different language. We say um, some crazy talk things like God is in control and God has a plan for you or that God will never leave you or abandon you or forsake you. And, and as an outsider, this sounds like crazy talk. And, and how could these things really be true? Or maybe you're in the church. Maybe you are a believer, but you're even thinking to yourself like, I don't know, like, I'm just not sure that I believe that as an outsider or even as an insider, because if you knew where I've been, there's no way that God would love me. If you knew how far I've come or where, how far that I've run, there's no way that these things you say about God, that he chases after you and that he would never leave you or forsake you. I think oftentimes as we um, live inside the church, we live inside this, this Christian world, oftentimes we want to form this bubble around us that we tend to lose this sense of wonder, this sense of awe, this sense of being wooed by the God of the universe, this sense of, um, of living out a miracle. And I think that... Um, well, one thing about this crazy talk, one, it's true because God says it's true. And those things like um, God is in control or God has a plan for you to, to a, a lost world, to the outsiders, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, we have any Aggies in here? No? Okay, one, that's enough. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, so, you know, from, from, as, as Aggies, Jimmy, by the way, don't stand up and come towards me. Okay, um, makes me a little nervous in front row. She's gigging them, gig them. Uh, but as an outsider to the A&M world, they look like folks who are a few fries short of a Happy Meal, right? 
we, we would probably all agree with that. Male cheerleaders, that's odd. And, and so we, we look from the outside and we don't understand <clears throat> we don't understand that. I think from a lost world, folks looking into the church, looking into the world of Christ, things look a little odd. And then being an insider, my hope and my, my desire for this morning is that we would be um, kind of refreshed, we would be made anew, that we um, would have this sense of awe and wonder um, and, and having our hair blown back of what God is calling us to and who he is and just the, um, what I would say, the absurdity of the gospel, the absurdity of God's word. And I would say the stuff in the Bible um, is not normal. I would even say the things that Adam um, spoke about from the scripture, the things that Adam and Ashley sang about today, just seem, I mean, they just come out of our mouth, right? Even praying to God. Like sometimes I pray and I'm just like, how amazing is this gift, this opportunity that we have to pray to the God of the universe and to be heard. And I think sometimes we just get in this Christian mode and we're just grinding it out, right? And we forget the simplicity of who God is. And I would say the stuff in the Bible is not only not normal, it's abnormal. And that God is in the business of working in ways that don't necessarily make sense to us. Maybe you can look back over 2015 and go, for sure, or faux shizzle, that God is definitely working in my life. And here are ways that he did that that don't make sense. I, I can't explain it. It's the sense of wonder, the sense of awe. Madeline LaEngle, who's an American writer born in the early 19, I think 1918, born, died in 2007. She says this, we try to be too reasonable about what we believe. Right? Have, you ever, have you ever done that? Like you try to make sense of God so that you can bundle it up in this nice little package and give it to somebody? Maybe you've driven away going, that is complete craziness. And God, unless you do something in their heart, there's no way that they would believe something like I have packaged up. She says, we try to be too reasonable, reasonable about what we believe what I believe is not reasonable at all. In fact, it's hilariously impossible. Possible things aren't worth much. These crazy impossible things keep us going. And each week, Ross or Brent will get up at the South Campus, and they'll say some, some, something to the tune of, um, hey, we're so glad you're here, and if you're visiting with us today, hey, we don't count it an accident that you're here. And again, we can just say those things. But from an outsider, you're like, what do you mean you don't count it an accident that I'm here? So you're, what, and what they're saying, what Ross and Brent or whoever is saying, that, that before time began, before God created the heavens and the earth, he knew in all of his glory and all of his plan that you would be here at Bethel White House this morning. And that those who aren't here, that he's not scratching his head going, oh my gosh, where are the rest of the Kirkendall family? I, I, I didn't see this coming, 
They're at another church? Oh, my lanta, we got to take care of this, right? No, he knew. And to think that God knew before, before the foundation of the world that you would be here. If visiting, if a regular attender, those who aren't here feel guilty listening to the podcast, that is my ultimate goal. Just kidding. That God knew that you were going to be here. Maybe even you look and watch television, just the craziness. The, sometimes we would want to shake our heads and say the nonsense that is on television and to say, where is God in this? But then to back up and believe that God is still God and that God is still in control. God is still God and that God is still in control. When I think of from, um, some craziness, um, there are several stories that come to mind um, in the Bible. I think about um, Daniel and the lion's den. That's absurd. A dude gets chunked into a den with lions and he lives, right? But I th- again, here we are in our Christian dumb, this Christianese that we speak, and we, oh yeah, that happens all the time. That stuff doesn't happen all the time. Meshad, Shadrach, and Abednego go into a fiery furnace. They're getting put in. It roasts the guys who are putting them in. They die, and they just kind of chill like a villain, you know, just all night in this fiery furnace. That stuff doesn't happen. I think about Gideon. This is one of my favorite stories. My middle child is named Gideon, which means mighty warrior. Here Gideon is... And so Israel has been waylaid by the Midianites, right? The Midianites have come through. They've waylaid um, Israel. And like in typical fashion, Israel, when they get waylaid, they're scraping themselves off the ground. And it's then that they cry out to God. Maybe you can relate to that. I know that sometimes I can relate to that. And so they scrape themselves up off the ground and they cry out to God. And this is where we insert an unnamed prophet who basically comes along and says, here's who God is and here's what he has done. Israel had forgotten these things. Now you insert Gideon, this mighty warrior, uh, in, in the midst of this destruction and God reminding Gideon who he is. And Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 13 through 16, he kind of says, well, 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 who are you and where have you been in the midst of destruction. Like Mark prayed this morning, we think about Garland and the folks suburbs of Dallas that were hit by tornadoes. I think in destruction, that is oftentimes the posture of our heart, right? God, where were you? In death and destruction and sickness, these things that kind of ravage our world. So you insert Gideon into this scenario and um, in a sense, God says, here's what you're going to do. Here's what I'm going to give you, better yet, here's what I'm going to give you the opportunity to be a part of. These God-ordained opportunities. Could Gideon have said no? Maybe, right? I think he probably could have said no. And he tells him what he's going to do, that he's going to go into battle. And here's how he's going to do it. But first, poor Gideon needs a sign, right? Signs are nice. If you're a Jeff Foxworthy fan, here's your sign, right? Or, or the, the blue-collar comedy tour. 
um, here is your sign. God is in sometimes the sign business. And he said, here's what it's going to look like. Shows him a sign. He's going to go up. He's going to say, okay, I'm in. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to rally my troops. I'm ready to put together my army. But God, just one more thing. I'm gonna, I need just another sign. Have you ever done that? Right? Like, God, if I'm really supposed to do this, then, then show me. And then he shows you, and you're like, oh, snap. Um, God, maybe just, maybe just one more. Just, just affirm me in that. And Gideon is like that. He's been showed one sign, and now he's going to be asked for actually not just another sign, but another sign and yet another sign. And so he shows him that. And some bizarre um, signs, right? Hey, I'm going to lay out this wool fleece and make the ground all dewy, except the fleece. That's awesome. And then the God does it, and then the next night, hey, I, don't be angry with me, but can you kind of flip-flop that order? Make the fleece dewy and the ground dry. And the, the Lord does it. The Lord does it. And here's where it gets really good, because Gideon puts together his army, he's rallied his troops, and he's put together a pretty hefty army, right? 32,000 people, 32,000 soldiers, and he's ready to go into battle. Verse 2 of chapter 7 of Judges says um, that God comes to him and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to need to whittle your army down a little bit, because if you go into battle with this amount of people, you're going to think that you saved yourselves. And I don't want that. I want it to be very apparent that this battle was won on my behalf because of who I am. And so he, he does it. And again, these things are not normal. These things, again, from an outsider's view, they're absurd. And my, my hope, my encouragement this morning is that you would embrace the absurdity that you would embrace the absurdity of who God is. So 32,000, uh, Gideon stands up, and here's what God has told him to do. He says, hey, if any of y'all are scared, we're about to go in the battle against those guys. If any of y'all are scared, then y'all can go on home. All the scaredy cats go on home. Two-thirds of his army leave, 22,000. I mean, those, those kind of things, sometimes when God tells you to do those things, and people actually respond, that's messed up. Like, can you imagine that having coming from a Young Life military background for eight years in Colleen Fort Hood, knowing generals and colonels and lieutenant colonels, I can't imagine being a general, a command sergeant major, you're standing up, hey, if there's any security cats, no, uh, y'all can go on home, knowing that nobody's going to leave. You would, <laughs> you would never leave. Two-thirds of your army, and you're going, oh, boy. This should, be, this should be interesting. You're left with 10,000. Still, God says, man, that's still too many. Because with 10,000, there's a chance that you might be able to win this battle on your own. Now send the guys down there to get a drink. And whoever, which I've never seen this, honestly. Um, well, actually, I did in the bathtub last night bathing my children. My, my, when the water's draining out, Gideon... Oddly enough, Gideon likes to slurp up the bathwater. Does anybody else's kid like to do that? I didn't think so. Oh, just one. Good, good. A lot of confession right there. So he, he sends these guys down to the water, and he says, 
whoever laps up the water like a dog. Well, obviously in Israel, there are a lot of like dog lappers because of the 10,000, 9,700 of them lap water on their hands and knees like that, right? Lapping like a dog. I would have been going into battle. I'm a cupper, right? Uh, you, you cup your hands. Uh, I, I'm a cupper. That's what, it, that's what it is. And so he whittles it down from 32,000 to 3,000, I mean to 300. And he says, now you're ready to go. It's almost like he's, he's stripped him of everything that he was proud of, of everything that he had control over, right? We love that C word. And so um, they go into battle, and, and they do it again in a bizarre way. And uh, I'm going to save that for you. If you want to read that, read Judges 6, read Judges 7. But they go and win this battle without actually ever, um, without actually ever taking in uh, weapons, firing weapons. I guess they're not firing weapons then. They're just spearing people. And so now moving on from Daniel and the three, Meshad, Shadrach, and Abednego, moving on from Gideon, insert Benaiah. Not a ton about Benaiah. We see in 2 Samuel 23 that Benaiah is a valiant warrior. He did, here's what it says, he did many heroic deeds, which included, again, these aren't normal things. These are crazy things which included killing two of Moab's mightiest warriors. Another time, he chased a lion down into a pit. Then, despite the snow and slippery ground, he caught the lion and killed it. We can just be cruising along in 2 Samuel and our Bible in a year plan, read right over that and not be blown away. Not go, dude, really? Really? You chased a lion into its den on a snowy day, the ground is slickery, and you caught the lion and you tore that thing up. That's unbelievable. But we can, again, lose that sense of awe, that sense of wonder, that sense of absurdity. If God isn't in this, then we're all lost. So he caught the lion and killed it. Oh, and another time, armed only with a club, he killed a great Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Wouldn't that, that'd be awesome business card. Great Egyptian warrior. Hey, I'm Johnny Russell, great Egyptian warrior. And by the way, I'm seven and a half foot tall. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Benaiah, there it is. Lots of wild and wacky stuff. And at face value, uh, God says and does lots of things that seem awfully weird. He tells Ezekiel to cook his meals over poo-poo for 390 days. At that time, all the kids literally in universe sense, he just said poo-poo. That's awesome. That's awesome. What's, I mean, that's strange. That's strange. Again, the sense of awe and wonder. God uses a donkey to speak to Balaam. That's different. God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. I'm out. Like, like, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't want to sign into something, a marital covenant with a prostitute. I'm just being honest. Just being honest. But that's what God has called Hosea to do. <clears throat> then you throw in speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost. That's bizarre. Uh, and then obviously, now we're in Christmas. 
you throw in Christmas. Maybe the strangest of all, a teenage virgin girl who, who is carrying God's son. Man, that is crazy. We just started up Young Life at um, John Tyler High School after a 40-year hiatus. And the week before last week, um, I, I just kind of broke out the Christmas story. And when I got to this part, Paul goes, wait, say that again? I said, yeah, I know. I know. A virgin, teenage girl is carrying God's son. How can that be? And that's a great question. And outside of who God is, this is complete absurdity. And knowing that, my hope is that we would brace this absurdity. And so is the, these absurdities, is God still calling us to this craziness? To cook over dung or to marry a prostitute or to go into a lion's den. And I think for, for us, the word is going to be obedience. And obedience is this, a willingness to do whatever, whenever, wherever God calls us. And that looks very different for each of us. It doesn't always uh, mean going halfway across the world, which is great, looking at the, the world behind where we, where we send missionaries, where we're supporting missionaries locally or North America or Asia or the Middle East doesn't necessarily mean that. Oftentimes, the most courageous actions only require us going across the room or across the street or across the oil field, right? Part of me wonders if we have been sold a bill of goods. Is it just me or does it seem like some people act as if faith or obedience is the reduction of risk? Man, risk. We... You don't hear that word a lot in the church. You don't hear that word a lot kind of in Christian ease. We act as if the goal of faith is to eliminate risk so our lives are, in the words of the old hymn, safe and secure from all alarm. You and if you're like me, we love 100% money back guarantees, Right? I'm in on there's there's no risk there's no loss the problem with 100% money back guarantees is it takes faith out of the equation there's no such thing as risk-free faith and so in the in the obedience family I think there's also another word maybe maybe a second cousin to obedience and it's the word trust and trust is a funny thing when it comes down to it because God is going to call you in some form or fashion, probably this afternoon, to go, right? We have the opportunity to obey. We have the opportunity to trust him in that calling. <clears throat> but um, I, I learned um, early on in ministry that control is an illusion, right? Control is an illusion. Moms, control is an illusion. Dads, control is an illusion. Kids, teenagers, 20-something, 
control is an illusion, and we want to wrestle with this. I want to wrestle with that a bit because this somehow this idea of control, this um, we crave it, we might even enjoy, enjoy it, right? This sense of control, but it is an illusion. In fact, I think the, the simple fact of following Jesus, when you decide to follow Jesus, it is this, this relinquishing of control, of letting go and um, letting God. Again, one of those kind of cliches that is really crazy talk. Why would you let go? Why would you let go of control from the outside as an outsider? That seems like such nonsense. And I think when we begin to trust and um, our lives begin to look different, we begin to um, live life kind of open-handed rather than closed-fisted. Our our, our grip lessens. And, And I think that as believers, we are called to live our lives differently. And I'm not talking like a little house on the prairie in 2016 kind of different. Uh, you know, take away buggies and carts and go no electricity or, you know, dress a certain way. Maybe that is your gig. But I don't necessarily think that's what God is calling us to. But God, the outside world should look at your life and go, hmm, there is something a little off about the boring family right? Drew and Emily, they are just different, but they're normal, and I'm drawn to them. What is it? It is Jesus in them. And so we're going to take a peep. If you have your Bibles, um, we're going to take a peep at Luke 10 and continue this idea of absurdity in the gospel, in um, God's word this morning. And so Luke 10, by this time, Jesus has been on the scene for quite some time. He's done miracles in the midst of um, the crowds. He has even called people to join him in this, to go out in trust, to go out in um, faith, and to be a part of what God is doing today. Then after Jesus talks about the cost of following him at the end of chapter 9, and you need to read that little snippet from 57 to 62, the cost of following Jesus, again, a bit absurd. Here's what God is going to do. And I think about kind of the, the night before he's kind of prepping his, the, his disciples. And he goes, oh, by the way, tomorrow I'm going to be sending y'all out. And kind of, here's where you're going to be going. And I'm going to send you out to do that. And so we would go home. Oh my gosh. Well, I know God, Jesus is sending me out. Here are the things that I'm going to put together. Definitely my camelback, my new balance shoes, my dry fit shorts with the underwear, dry fit top, and a hat, you know, kind of a sun hat for me to go. Oh, and by the way, Mark, I'm going to need a detailed agenda and route of where you want me to go to the towns that are safe and the homes where they're going to welcome me, right? Because I have needs, and you have needs, and here's the home that I need, and here's the vehicle that I need, and here's the school that my kids need to go to. And we're going to see that Jesus, like Gideon, is he's going to kind of scrape those things away to help pull those things out of our clenched 
the reality is, is we need uh, very little here in life. But man, I've got my, I've got my list of what I need. In fact, before getting married, guys, maybe you did this, maybe before you kissed dating goodbye, you had, you know, put together your list of what you need in a wife. Maybe you did that. I did that. I confess to that. And we have our list, right? And so we're going to look at Luke 10. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 24. I think I told the sound guy through 23, but y'all can stretch into that. And so here's what God's word says. Think about it from an outsider's view. Think about it from an insider's view. Think about this and embracing the absurdity of what is about to take place. I love my Bible. It's a red-letter Bible, which means whatever Jesus spoke is in red letters. And so um, the majority of this chapter or this section is Jesus speaking the very words of Christ. Man, and we have it today. It says, after the Lord, Lord, oh Lord, um, after the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go, he told them, "The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse." or a bag, or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay at that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you healing the sick who are there, and tell them, the kingdom of God is near. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw. Jesus replies, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snake and scorpion to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However... Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one who knows, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, here it is, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. That is the word of the Lord. Unbelievable. There's a lot of kind of crazy, absurd things in there. And so I'm going I'm to pick a little bit out of each little section. And here in the first four verses, God, Jesus is going to call them. He's going to tell them that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We, we love that verse in the church, right? The 20% rule, 20% are doing 80% of the work. And people are always lacking generally in the church. Like how I backed off that always, that absolute not always doing anything. It says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, for workers, go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. None of that seems great. And here's what the process looks like. Ask, go. Then, and I'm sending you out like a lamb among wolves. From a parental standpoint, that just sounds like a bad idea. Why would you want to send out your people like a lamb into the world of wolves? And by the way, don't take any money, any belongings, or any shoes, just the clothes on your back, and don't greet anyone. You are on a mission. Would you have gone Would you have gone if you're looking Jesus in the eye and said, here's what I want this to look like for you? I'm sending you with nothing except your greatest need, and your greatest need is going to be dependence on me. They are stripped down to complete dependence on him. In his book, um, If Only, which I love that, maybe if you have ever played that game, if only, or what if. Uh, Dr. Neil Rose, he said he makes a fascinating distinction between two types of regret. Regrets of action and regrets of inaction. The regret of action is wishing you hadn't done something. As adults, we can look back over our life and, man, I wish I hadn't done that. Wish I hadn't done that last week. In the theological terms, we call this a sin of commission. A regret of inaction is wishing you had done something. In theological terms, it's a sin of omission. He goes on to say, I think the church has fixated on sins of commission for far too long. We have a long list of don'ts. Think of it as holiness by subtraction. We think holiness is the byproduct of subtracting something from our lives, it shouldn't be there. And holiness certainly involves subtraction. But I think God is more concerned about sins of omission 
those things we could have and should have done. It's holiness by multiplication. Goodness is not the absence of badness. You can do nothing wrong and still do nothing right. Those who simply, this punched me in the face, those who simply run away from sin are half Christians. Our calling is much higher than simply running away from what's wrong. Maybe you're a product of the, you know, you grew up in the 80s or 90s. You remember the phrase, no guts, no glory. Because when we don't have the guts to step out in faith, then God is robbed of the glory that rightfully belongs to him. Would you have gone when Jesus called you out? Mark Twain says, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bowline, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, and discover. We won't regret the mistakes we made as much as those God-ordained opportunities that we missed. Can you imagine being one of the 22,000 scaredy cats that went home when Gideon made that offer? Laying in bed, man, your bed is comfortable, right? It's a lot better than going out there sleeping in the field, eating MREs. But you know what you didn't get to experience? What God did. Can you imagine being Benaiah and in that split second moment, looking that eye that that eye on that lion in the eye and going, I can either fight or I can flight. And he chased him into his home. And it's there that he grabbed him by his mane and took care of business. Can you imagine being one of these disciples going, man? I, 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 just, I just don't know if I could go. And I think God is calling us, I think Jesus is calling us to that exact same thing, to go across the classroom, to grow, go across the cubicle, across the street, maybe across the living room to that awkward uncle that you just spent Christmas with, right? Who everyone's scared to talk about Jesus with because he's an atheist agnostic would you have gone will you go in verse 5 we see some really crazy things um, that Jesus is called so he calls them to take nothing except a dependence on him and he says by the way when you enter a house first say peace to this house I'm going to start doing that when I enter a house if a man of peace is there your peace will rest on him if not it will return to you Stay in that house eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. I think he's saying that have no expectation as to what I will provide or in what way. Receive it with grace. He sends them out with nothing and offers them this simple truth that I will take care of you. That relinquishing of control. When I roll out my new balance and my dry fit shorts and my hat, my detailed plan, in a sense, I'm taking care of myself. The disciples have been sent out to depend on Jesus. <clears throat> Be content. 
I'm really convicted or punched in the face by verse 10. It says, but when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your, um, of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. If you are rejected or when you are rejected, keep on moving. My call is to you and to your obedience. Your obedience doesn't depend, isn't dependent on other people's reaction. <laughs> Thank goodness. And I think rejection, I think it, it, it could be a cuss word, right? Rejection, I think that word is what paralyzes believers from really acting, from really trusting, from really being obedient to who God is. I mean, man, if you've ever wanted to share your faith or someone knows who you are and that you're a believer in Christ, and that rejection, they've kind of shied or shunned you out of their life, that rejection sinks its claws into you. And that dude can stay in your back for a long, long time, can make you gun shy from ever um, doing that again. And then, so they have been sent out with nothing. They have experienced some great things, and they return with this unbelievable joy. Verse 17, it says, The 72 returned with joy and said to the Lord, or said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is going to pull back the curtain of the heavenlies, and here's what he's going to say. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, don't focus on these things that you have seen, but focus on your name being written in heaven. And I think this is just a warning to the church that we can get caught up in the things that God has done and begin to poke out and puff out our chest and go, oh yeah, Bethel is the bomb.com. Like this is where God is moving. And we really want to focus on that. And we want to focus on the joys and the great things that Jesus has done in Bethel. Rather than go, man, those are great things. And don't only celebrate that. But celebrate that your names are written in heaven. Your identity is not defined by the mission that I'm sending you on. Your identity is in Christ, in Christ alone. And then Jesus goes on to give God all the glory because of the guts of his followers, right? <clears throat> then verse 23 and 24 which is incredible. He says, then he turned to his disciples and said privately. I love that, that he pulled them aside, these 72 aside and says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets, prophets, like prophets, these guys are legit, and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And many a churchgoers 
long to see what you have seen. But they didn't because they're comfortable on their couches or sitting in a pew. Five years ago, five and a half years ago when we moved to Tyler, uh, I was excited about kind of doing this church shopping business, right? Like you, that's what you do when you move to town. You, you've looked them up on the internets and you found what's, what's good out there. And so we knew where we were going to visit. And our first one on the docket was Bethel. Um, and at that time, hard to believe, five and a half years ago, there was only one campus, a South Campus. And we had a connection. Ross was, or is on our Young Life Committee. And so we went there. And I remember getting in my truck afterwards and going, well, that was easy. And Taylor kind of being like, well, what was easy? I was like, well, that's our church home right there. That's where we're staying. And we have fallen in love with Bethel to serve the people, to serve as a family, serve as individuals. And we love where Bethel has been. We love where we are. And we love where Bethel is going. And the vision is great. And Jesus is calling us to embrace the absurdity of God's word. And he's also, I think, calling us to embrace the absurdity of what's to come and the vision that God has put in the hearts of Mark and Eric and Ross. Again, from the outside, we're going to be looking in going, man, those guys like eat paint chips when they were little. Maybe Eric, but probably not Mark or Ross. You know, did they grow up under power lines? Where are these guys coming from? God is in the business of strategically positioning us in the right place, at the right time. As believers, it's almost our destiny, our birthright um, to live in that as followers of Christ. <clears throat> so I'm gonna recap. If you've been at Bethel the past maybe month or so, you have heard kind of the vision. You, you've heard that um, we are thankful for another record year, eight consecutive record years. Again, that doesn't happen, folks. The church is diminishing in, in, in general and as a whole. Bethel has been fortunate enough to see and experience the joys of the Lord. Eight consecutive years of giving, of growth, of attendance and membership, up an average of 160 people a week compared to last year. That's not 160 more every single week. Compared to last year's attendance, we are up 160 people. 24% growth, which is our fastest growth in eight years. 85 new families have joined Bethel in the past year. Again, that is absurd. Behind all these numbers is real-life transformation of God's grace using Bethel to grow communities, build leaders, and to live generously in our community. Here's one of the greatest opportunities to embrace the absurdity is our 19% increase in our budget. Again, from the outside, you're looking in and going, man, who, who's our executive pastor and how did he used to run a business? How is this a great idea? And our budget is gonna be for the first time over $2 million dollars. So 2015, we're looking in the rearview mirror that it is behind us, and 2016 is ahead of us. A brand new year. It hasn't even hit. What does it hold in store for you? 
the desire, the call from Bethel to us is that we would grow community, that we would build leaders, and that we would live generously. Embrace the absurdity of this call. Embrace the absurdity of this vision. And so I hope that this morning you have, um, that you've kind of, uh, have been refreshed in this sense of awe, this sense of wonder of who God is and the things that he is doing and the things that he's doing today in your life in East Texas and the things that he's calling us to. Thank you guys. I'm going to pray and then we will uh, head on out. So join me as we pray. Jesus, um, oftentimes I sit back and um, I, I shake my head and go, and only you, God, only you could do something like this. Your word, your calling um, for obedience, for trust is absurd. And to a lost world, as an outsider, these things don't make sense. But God, in Christ, these things make complete sense. So we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this mission. We thank you for our church home, this church body. We thank you for Mark and Bethel White House, Lord. Thank you for this day that you have made, Lord. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's brand new, and I pray that it would honor you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.